0: Steve, happy Monday. How are you?
1: Doing good, man. Another uh, weekend on lockdown, quarantine, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, just uh, having fun with the family, man. Just enjoying life. Doing only so much you can do, but doing lots of outdoor hikes and yeah. Um, yeah. How about you?
0: Yeah, about the same, man. We had good weather here, so it was just a matter of getting outside as much as possible. Some of that was fun some of that was boring like housework you know spring cleanup type stuff going on around the house so yeah it's good nice we we just two seconds ago literally just two seconds ago saw this email come through it said no no offense to you guys mark and steve but could we get a guest appearance from lenny on the tss shows we haven't heard from him in a while oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's get them on people are getting tired of us man yeah I guess (laughs) we actually did record with lenny uh a couple weeks ago kind of for a full episode it just hasn't gone out yet so maybe we'll just expedite getting that one out there um and see if we can get lenny on a tss here soon but i thought that was funny because it just came through as we started this Uh, that's funny we had more good questions from you guys the listeners and thank you as always for sending those in uh, you can just email us to podcast at com, But that's the agenda again today is just talking through some listener questions and related points accordingly. So uh, the first one, Steve, is getting into some archery talk, which is good because I feel like, uh, you know, you and I have been chatting more about rifles. We're doing the reloading thing. It's always good to get back to archery a little bit here. So um, this guy says, I've been fighting cabin fever by listening to the TS episodes. And thank you for that. I am also planning my first archery elk hunt in Montana for this coming fall. Question for you guys. What is your arrow setup for elk and mule deer? What weight arrows and broadheads are you guys shooting? And are you shooting the same arrows for elk and for mule deer?
1: Okay. Um, I Yeah, I'm absolutely... Uh, like, find something that works for you and just stick with it through, like, you know, don't change uh, I think the only scenario would be like freaking hunting rhinos with a bow or something like that. You know what I mean? Cape Buffalo. Um, the, uh, um, yeah, basically I'm just, I, I want to find something that's just going to perform well on everything. So really it's build an arrow that's perfect for elk and then just know that, yeah, maybe I could shoot something a little bit lighter for deer, but I don't even know if I'd say that as it's coming out of my mouth. Um, it's really just, yeah, per, like anyways, 400 to 450 grains I think is a really good spot to hit. Like my arrows the last decade have probably fallen between 415 and 440 um, just depending on the setup that I run. You know, I, there is a, a fad right now with, you know, kind of not necessarily super heavy arrows but definitely super uh, high FOC, the forward of center weights. Uh, so shooting, you know, heavy broadheads, heavy kind of insert-outsert systems to try to promote a lot of weight up front. I don't want to say it's, um, a f- you know, I don't think it's bad uh, in the in any sense other than you you are you do have to compromise uh, arrow trajectory, right? So that's super heavy arrow. As you start, you know, out to 40 yards, not going to really matter one way or the other. You're probably only talking a couple inches between, you know, say a 400 grain arrow and a 550 grain arrow. Um, but once you start getting 50, 60, you know, 65, 70 yards, uh, you do got a balanced trajectory. Because there are plenty of times when you're, you're bow hunting, you get a range on that elk and he's at, you know, 52 yards. You come to full draw. He takes a couple steps. You have to take a step to clear some brush or something. also of a sudden he's at 57 you didn't really perceive that happening and you shoot, um, you know, a couple inches of trajectory is going to make a big difference at that distance. So to me, it's always been a striking a good balance of, of an arrow that's going to, um, the you know, shoot as flat as possible. And at the same time, um, uh, you know, penetrate well. And a, a lot of that comes down to the broadhead design, right? Like you want, a you don't want a giant cutting diameter you want something that's kind of cut on contact that's going to penetrate well uh and and really pass through bone um and and pass through both sides so you get a good blood trail coming out both sides of the animal um i don't know what are your thoughts
0: yeah i mean pretty similar i don't um i i'm starting with building an elk arrow like I, I just like unlike you i don't yield deer hunt with bow every year so it's not like that's not my consideration my consideration is with elk and that's what i'm building my arrow for um but in terms of what i'm looking at it's generally pretty close i'm probably a little bit heavier i think the the arrows i'm shooting currently are going to be 455 460 so just a touch heavier um but I actually did play with some you know some super heavy arrows arrows recently and it's exactly what you said like at first when i was just you know kind of dialing on the bow in the sight and i was shooting between 20 and 40 i was like ah, it's not so bad but really i mean stepping back past 40 i think the first time i shot at 60 i was like holy cow like those things are you know they're dropping for sure mm-hmm. um you know and there there's pros and cons right like we got guys making arguments for all kinds of things you know the benefits of heavy arrows. Um, arrows when it comes to penetration, even quieting your bow, et cetera, et cetera. But as you said, you're giving up some of that um, trajectory. Um, I just, yeah, I don't, you know, it's, it comes back to placement. As you said, it comes back to broadhead design. Like there's just all kinds of variables, but I think going back to what you said initially, just something well-rounded, a good do it all, you know, getting in that four to 450 range is going to be pretty solid no matter what you're doing as you mentioned rhinos or something aside right but i will even you know even for whitetails which um you know they can be jumpy they can jump the string be very spooky i don't even really change for that and like yeah it's it's a lot to be shooting a 465 grain arrow at a whitetail it's more than you quote unquote need but at the same time for me it just goes back to simplicity of setup dialing in one system not changing side no. tapes, not changing bow tunes, none of that. Just like get dialed right now and then shoot that same setup for, you know, the coming yeah. months and just shoot as much as possible versus tinkering as much as possible or trying yeah. to optimize for the the marginal gains on the end of the spectrum.
1: Yeah, I used to do like a 3D setup and then I'd convert my bow after, you know, middle of summer to to a hunting setup and then at some point I was like, this is stupid. Like you just wait like I, I, ideally i get my bow dialed in uh you know right now january february march and then just shoot that whole setup all year long get really familiar with it get comfortable with it um and i think you're you're going to be uh you know way better off when it comes hunting season because you've shot you know thousand plus arrows through that bow and you, you know it well you know the broadheads fly well uh, and you're not constantly you know Tinkering around because sometimes it can be a pain in the butt sometimes, you know, a little change and all of a sudden you got to like, like you mentioned retune and, and you're maybe not getting as good a flight So it's like if you get if you can dial in something get it shooting great just freaking leave it be and and shoot and practice and because uh, at the end of the day that's all Marginal stuff, right? It's the shooter the shooter's confidence uh, That that is going to make the biggest impact on you you making a good shot when that animal steps in front of you so for for whitetails or something, it would make no sense to me because um, I do you know talking about this heavy stuff. Like I said, it doesn't matter until you get out to forty, fifty, sixty plus yards. Like anything under forty yards, you you're seeing like half an inch of impact or something like that. At yeah. uh, you know you know, it's a tree stand shot at twenty two yards. Like the difference between a three hundred and fifty grain arrow and a five hundred grain arrow are not going to be that much.
0: Yeah, and it's honestly you going back to. Almost feels like a former life at this point. But like if you have the time to tinker and mess with all those arrow setups and tune like if you have the time, that's fun, man. And you'll learn a lot by doing it. And if you want to optimize a setup, I I think there can be a case made that if you have the time and desire, like an elk arrow and a deer arrow could be optimized, but um it's also not necessary. It's marginal gains for the most part. Um yeah. and it's also important I would just say to to note Have your goals for your arrow setup planned ahead of time before you start choosing an arrow, before you start choosing a broadhead, before you start cutting arrow lengths, like know what you're trying to build because, you know, say you select a certain arrow shaft and you cut it to a certain length and then you want to start playing with like point weight or front of center or inserts or additional weight. You know, that shaft that you selected in the first hand could be the wrong shaft because as you add point weight, as you do those types of things, as you mess with FOC, you're changing that dynamic spine and you could very quickly find yourself with the wrong shaft. So just know ahead of time what you're trying to build so that you can select those components. Um, Otherwise, you could be, yeah, you could just be in a world of trouble in terms of
1: not having something that's actually built well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One other thing I'd, I would add is I'm a huge fan of the micro diameter shafts. Uh, I, I do think there's a lot of benefits to those over a, a traditional uh, kind of arrow shaft. It's a five diameter that the super thin stuff, you know, I shoot a, the four millimeter uh, Easton um, FMJs uh, gold tip has their Pierce victory has their kind of VAP series. I think they've got different models off of that now. Like all of those are just, I think it's a, a superior arrow than than something that's a your more traditional standard diameter. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean it comes to performance and wind penetration there's just so many benefits it's hard to see a downside.
1: Yeah. And I um speaking from experience I guess when you know said 400 to 450 grains for me I, I have not uh, had not had a pass through on an animal I've shot in the last 10 plus years like th- to me that 100 grain broadhead up front you know a good design cutting broadhead i still shoot the solid broadheads that i designed a long time ago and, and they just penetrate like no other um and uh and yeah that micro diameter shaft you know 400 something grains. whether it's an elk deer bear antelope a caribou whatever it just arrows just zip right through that stuff um so yeah i, I guess for me it's like proven it works I don't need to mess with anything else, you know? Yeah.
0: And you're shooting that, What you're shooting 65 pounds, Steve?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bounced. I used to shoot 70. My shoulder's really jacked up. So now it's 65 pounds, uh, 29, and 29 and a half inch draw depending on the bow. Um, and then um, I want to say velocities anywhere from 280 to 295 is probably what they shoot Mm -hmm. um i don't i don't think i've had a hunting bow shoot over 300 feet per second Uh, by the time you shoot 65 pounds and you know 440 grain arrow yeah you're you're right there at 285 290 typically so
0: i don't know if this is a a fair question for you but every time i get the broadhead question i always throw out like a you know because solids are great as you mentioned you know yeah, they're good, but not everybody's going to have that budget for that. So I was trying to throw yeah. out like, yeah, if you have the budget, like a solid's great. But if you're, you know, if you're on a budget, here's another option. What is your, what would be a go-to recommendation or a couple of recommendations on the more budget option for Broadhead Ooh. specifically?
1: Um, you know, the old standard slick trick, um, the, the, my, the standard one that's a one inch cutting diameter, maybe. Uh, uh, that thing seemed to perform very, very well on a lot of animals. Um, they're tough. Uh, they fly, you know, pretty dang good. Um, Wacom makes a really good broadhead. Uh, G5 Montex are good broadhead. Um, I'm trying to think of stuff that's more in, you know, your 30, $40 broadhead. What's that other one? Oh, wasp, uh, wasp bullet or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah, my mom's been probably the wrong guy to ask. I have not paid attention to right. all the new broadheads that are on the market the last few years. So, yeah, yeah,
0: no, that's funny. That's the that slick tricks. My number one recommendation there as well, and I still shoot them. Yeah, um, yeah, they're just they're good heads. They fly good. They cut good. They're tough. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. cool. Um, all right, moving on. Let's. Uh, the next one was a question on quilts and their temperature range, temperature flexibility. So this guy wrote in and said. Hammock gear has a good sale on quilts right now, and I'm looking to buy my first one. I'm wondering about adjusting the temperature by using an insulated versus an uninsulated pad. So if I get a 30, if I get a 30 degree quilt, I know I'll be good for roughly 30 degrees with an insulated pad specifically. But what type of range would I be at with an uninsulated pad? So I guess he's asking about warmer weather camping with a quilt and is it smart or what can he expect if he goes with an uninsulated pad and a quilt specifically knowing that the temperature rating of his quilt is not going to perform at that rating. But again, it's for warmer weather. What are your thoughts there?
1: Um, I like the direction he's approaching it from, right? It's not, it's uh, the correct direction and understanding how important the R value is underneath you. I would say, I've never slept on a pad outside of a Thermarest NeoAir X Therm. So, they their gray X Therm pad uh, that I ever felt was too warm to sleep on, no matter the conditions. Um, so, that, like any, I would just pick a pad um, that's in that, you know, that we talked about. I guess that has that podcast aired yet that we did? Probably not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I so, think we yeah. did mention something on a TSS episode about quilts. Okay. But yeah,
0: our in-depth discussion on sleep systems is coming soon. Not early.
1: Okay. Um, so pick something. There's a new testing out called, is it ATSM or ASTM? It's like a standardized testing method. Um, and uh, you'll basically, on that company's website, just go find it. Find what their the actual tested R value is. 3.7 to 4.5, I think is like a great range for us as hunters um that, that gets you in warm weather uh and keeps you warm enough in cold weather um, i found out that the r value of sle- of bags is tested with a pad that's like f- either like 4.0 or 4.2 um so that's kind of what the thing's based off that's what he's getting at there the rating on the quilt um but i would just get a yeah a pad that's an r value that's right around four and then get a 20 degree quilt if i was gonna you know that's basically what i run um and when it's warm you just don't the, the beauty of that quilt is the ventilation, right? You just open it up. It becomes a blanket. You easily kick a leg out of it. Um, it's it's awesome. So the only scenario I could see, you know, typically my camping, you know, it's a backpacking trip or something like that. I'm still in the mountains. And even in summer, it's, you know, maybe f- 50, 55 at night. Uh, it's not like you're sleeping out where it's really, really hot. So I could see an uninsulated pad. If you're like backpacking the Grand Canyon, maybe something something south, right? That's like that it's legit like 85, 90 degrees at night. Um, I could see that scenario of of playing with an uninsulated pad to to keep yourself cool. But uh if you're just talking about hunting the Rocky Mountains, you know, backpacking in July and August, it still gets relatively chilly at night. Um so I would just yeah, just stick with like a four four-ish and that 20 degree thing and you'd be a 20 degree quilt and you'd be golden yeah
0: yeah it's um yeah exactly what you said the the versatility in terms of ventilating that quilt and mine's a i think mine's a 22 degree which i've had into low to mid-teens and been nice and then i've you know had it in like what you said 55 60 and just ventilate it or you know use it partially essentially um if it's super warm and muggy because i have done some of that camping honestly if, i just tend to go to a hammock for that if possible um yeah it it just it's cool and it ventilates well and i'm typically not um yeah just concerned with other shelters at that point so i haven't done that extensively but i have made that my go-to if you're in truly truly warm weather camping that hammock's just awesome for that specifically i like that idea Yeah. yeah The We had a follow-up on the question when we were talking the other day about bladders and bottles, uh, and this guy wrote in, and he said, As you guys mentioned in a previous episode, I had a hard time knowing how much water was left in my water bladder when it's in my pack. So I started carrying my water bladder in the load shelf between the bag and the frame. Uh, for context, he is running an exo. And he continued to say, "It is protected right in there. You just have to peel the edge of the pack back to take a quick peek at your water bladder and see how much water is left." Have you guys tried this approach? Are there
1: downsides to running a bladder this way? Um, I've done it a little bit. I when the bladder is completely full, um, you know, a three liter bladder, it, it forms a pretty decent sized tube. There are some bladders on the market that have like. Internal chambers so that they don't turn into a, a tube right there. They stay more kind of wide and flat. I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't be hesitant to use one of those in between the, the platypus bladder that I use doesn't have that so it it's just this big tube um, and so it kind of pushes the bag away from the frame and the bag kind of wants to I say wobble back and forth off of it but basically you got the, you know if you got the bag stuff full and you're trying to jam that in between uh, you're basically putting up, you know, a cylinder in between and the bag just kind of wants to shift back and forth a little bit. So having done that, uh, with the bladder I use, like I said, a flat one would definitely work. Uh, it is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, they said not having that visibility. So, uh, but if it's working to me, it's like, there's nothing if the, it's the guy's doing it and it's working for him, stick with it. Great. It's not like you're not hurting, hurting anything. Right. Like, right. um, just potential of your bladder. Is a little bit more exposed maybe a stick could slide in from the side you know um and get it I, I don't know that's the only downside i could see yeah
0: yeah i mean there's you know there's upsides right it is quick to access it is quick to see god forbid you did have a leak you know it's not in your main bag which obviously we've addressed that in how the bladder is stored in our bags but still there's some upsides to it for sure um you know i guess the one just one thing to think through is obviously if you actually need to use your old shelf to pack something out you just be aware you're going to go back to plan b for your bladder right like you're going to put it in the bag that type of thing but um yeah it can work and what you said steve about those baffles or that chamber type design in a bladder um that can really make a difference uh i have one of the three liter platypus uh bladders that does have that so it's essentially has um a center section to it that keeps it from turning big round and tubular and allows it to lay more flat especially when it's full i mean it makes a, a dramatic difference so um you know if i was shopping today then that's certainly something i would consider is getting something that has that design to it and helping it lay flat because whether it's in the bag or as this guy mentioned on the frame that just makes a big difference in the profile
1: yeah absolutely
0: All right, let's tackle one more. This is a follow up um, to what we discussed back in the TS episode. TSS episode four. That's a mouthful. Said, I listened to your (laughs) recent podcast on this topic about the best way to secure head and horns to your packs. It's good info, but it piqued my interest about the best way to do it for those of us who run our packs without a lid attached. I have the accessory straps, but don't want to pack them unless necessary. Maybe you guys could talk about the best way with and without K3 accessory straps. So a few things here. One is all of our packs you can run without the lid. Um, And then what he's referring to, just so guys are clear, is we have an accessory called accessory straps, which work great um, for securing head and horns to the top of the pack, especially without a lid. That's context. Steve walked through um, the use of those straps and then is there a reason like this guy mentioned he doesn't want to carry those unless he has to is there a way to do it with you know secure head and horns without those straps that you would recommend or would you just recommend carrying those straps if you're going to run without
1: a lid Uh yeah if you're running without a lid which is how like all pretty much all of hunting season I ran a 3200 without a lid last year uh, and you just want those two accessory straps cuz you know, just loading meat on, just quarters, you, you don't need them. But the second uh, you've got a head that you're trying to strap on top of it, um, how we want you to load it up on top of the frame, uh, you you need those accessory straps. And they're not, you know, weight is weight. Uh, I, wanna, I say it's like under two ounces, though, for the set of them. Uh, it's not super heavy for sure. Um, so, the, yeah, you want them for sure because uh, that, that's going to allow you to – I designed those things. They run um, – from the top of the bag to the top of the frame, uh, basically you got those two. There's two at the top of the frame. There's two loops sewn there that are like attached right behind the load lifter straps. Um, and then there's two loops. Basically, you got the Velcro flap for the bag, right? That uh, comes over the frame, the trifold piece. There's two loops at the kind of um, open shapes there where the the uh, where they wrap around the, the load lifter straps on the frame. Um, and yeah, you're just gonna run those straight across. And they're going to work great for just securing that head nice and tight to the frame. So, it would, uh, you know, I suppose if you're packing, if you, if he's really like on a weight savings perspective, if he's already packing, say like 25, 50 feet of parachute cord, he could he could run those through there uh, and kind of improvise just to get himself out of there. So it's like kind of double duty on that cord. Um, and I would imagine that would work pretty pretty well once you got everything dialed. I would be leery of because um, as you hike things are going to kind of shift and settle in and if you like tight a bunch of knots in the cord uh, that could cause some issues for him or, or you'd have to undo the knots and then re-tighten it up as he hiked you know um, where a strap as it loosens you can just you know after you hike a mile or two you sit down check all the straps make sure everything's tight it's pretty easy just to cinch those up a little bit more um, but yeah you absolutely you know without a lid you need something on top like we always sold on the k2s we had the 2000s and they didn't come with a lid, but we shipped it with two extra buckles so that you could take the roll top portion uh and connect it to the lid straps or on the frame. Uh, so you had that kind of op option to to run it back. But that required you of just throwing those two buckles on those straps or throwing them in the pack for for that scenario. But that's something you gotta plan for. You know, I think it's um a lot of guys oh, uh, don't really plan for when they kill something, you know, like, <laughs> uh, it, and then the, the time you do kill something, uh, you're like, oh crap, I should have done this or I should have done that. So like, uh, trekking poles are a great example, right? I almost never use them, uh, until I kill something. But once you do, they're worth every freaking you know, ounce that you pack that entire time just for that specific moment of getting off that mountain and getting out of there. So, yeah. um, I think lid straps, the accessory straps, uh, sorry, accessory straps would be the Something that fits right in there with trekking poles. It's a, it's a necessary weights uh, to make life a lot better when you're coming out because not, there's nothing worse than a head sitting on the pack that's floppy and bouncing and catching on brush and you know that uh, the extra energy and you're ex, you know expending just to kind of stabilize that and um, you know yeah it's it's uh, definitely easily offset by just packing those accessory straps.
0: Yeah, yeah, something I do quite a bit. I I do run without a lid quite a bit and I will keep one of our stash pockets um, back in that zippered compartment where the bladder goes, just so it's kind of out of the way. And it essentially contains kind of just those items I only need, um, you know, when I fill a tag. So whether that's kill kit related stuff, whether that's my tag and license, whether it's those accessory straps, just essentially have that one stash pocket that has all those uh, post kill items, if you will, stored back there out of the way, but I know it's all there for when I need it. Um, and so that's where I will keep my accessory straps. And as you mentioned, you're not, you're not really going to feel those ounces. Um, and what you hit on there, Steve, about kind of not planning for the kill. It also just reminds me of, you know, over the years, something that I've paid more attention to and seen more guys do intentionally, which has made a big difference is when you do fill a tag, um, you know, obviously you're going to take photos, do whatever, that's great. But before you get into cutting that animal up and getting your hands bloody and messy is just, before you do that, be prepared, get prepared for the pack yeah. Um, You know, even thinking of in Kodiak, Stephen, we were filming a lot of tags. Like, taking those extra five minutes to – you know, detach the bag from the frame to get your load shelf ready to set certain things out, to put certain things away, to have a snack for the out. like to do all those little things before you actually start diving into processing that animal makes a huge difference. Because um, once you start not only from, you know, getting your hands bloody, that type of thing, but just kind of that whole feeling of like once, at least for me, once I get going, I'm just like in, in the mode and I'm not... yeah. You know, I'm not always thinking straight, so I take those few minutes first to like get stuff ready, be prepared for the pack out, um, make sure I have water if possible, like make sure the pack's ready to load, the game bags are out, the tags fit, like just go through all that stuff first, uh, so that you don't get in a rush and then make you know simple mistakes or just
1: oversights that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a lesson, and I still like. I still don't do it every time, uh, you know. but the times I do do it, it's like, okay, that was smart. Yeah, get just completely get ready. Um, so it's just a matter of putting the meat on and, and you're done. It's um, yeah, it's nice. So cool. Uh, one question for you. How are you
0: cutting your hair these days? Dude, I'm not. I am like in full <laughs> quarantine mode. I'm starting to look like the guy from Castaway.
1: Dude, I went. Uh. Yeah, I was like, I literally, I was like, looked in the mirror and I was like, man, I'm getting pretty shaggy. I need to get my hair cut. And then it really dawned on me like, oh, crap. Like, I can't. Like, all, like, everything in Iowa was shut down, and especially uh, hair cutting places. So then I jumped on, jumped online to like, uh, initially just jumped on Amazon to look for a hair trimmer and, basically like out of stock or 150 dollars i was like that, that price what? can't be right you know? yeah and then i went to like wall hair clipper you know like wall whl uh-huh. uh hl clippers um and they have a big giant note on their home page like due to high demand order we're we are still really? shipping but orders are taking longer <laughs> it that's like, wild it was such a funny like there's so many you know this is, this is obviously affecting the entire world and it's affecting so many people in just different ways right like yeah who would ever thought that uh you know, investing stock in a hair clipper company would have been something great to do three weeks ago. Right. right. Uh, That's but, funny. Um, yeah. Dude, I, so I ordered, uh, I ordered some clippers and just put like a number three or number four on there. I'm just going to buzz right over the top of the head. I don't know how else to do it. So. I was
0: going to say, I got a set of walls, man. I'll sell them to you for the right price. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that same kit that was on Amazon for 150 bucks was like $34. On Are you the kidding me? Them. So I just ordered it from them and that was kind of funny, but just, uh, some humor and all this craziness. Yeah. Dude, forever. I
0: used to, uh, I used to just buzz my head, just, just straight up like a one, just buzz it. Oh yeah. (laughs) And so that's why I have clippers from. And Uh, more recently I've been going and getting it cut. And with this whole mess, I'm like, I don't trust myself to cut it with any sort of like length or style. So it's the same thing. It's like, do I just buzz it back? What do I do? I'm just, I'm starting to look like a the Unibomber or something. I haven't trimmed <laughs> my beard. not leaving the house. You know, it's getting ugly. Not that it was pretty uh, before, but it's getting uglier.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll be uh, shooting some product videos next week. I know I'll get that scheduled out and have a buzzed head for it. That's for sure. So Sweet. Awesomeness. Well, looking
0: forward to it, guys. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Again, if you got questions, just shoot us an email to podcast at XOMountainGear.com. Whether it's a question for the podcast or anything else, we'd be happy to help. We'll talk to you later.